Hi, everyone. I'm Nikki Porter. And I'm Nadine Smith. And this is Canada Horse Podcast brought to you by Informed Equestrian. We strive to enhance the lives of horse owners by facilitating conversations that make people want to talk. Canada Horse Podcast, we are spotlighting the Canadian horse industry while serving our mission to help bridge the knowledge gap for horse owners by offering the whys behind the decisions we make for our horses from their tack to their trainers to their vet care and everything in between. Our listeners are encouraged to use the information offered here on the Canada Horse Podcast to make informed choices that suit their individual needs. We believe in education over judgment and informed choices over following the crowd. Welcome everyone back to Canada Horse Podcast, episode number 14. We cannot wait for today's interview. We're excited for this unique episode because it showcases two incredible assets to our equine industry here on the East Coast, and because we believe it is a conversation that will leave you feeling informed, today we're speaking with Dr. Jordan Koivu and Aaron Steves. Dr. Koivu works as an equine veterinarian with Sunny Coast Vets, and Aaron is one of the Maritime's most well-respected and educated farriers, so welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, Jordan and Aaron, this really is a unique opportunity to have a meeting of the minds when it comes to hoof care for our horses as well as the flow of communication and relationships between horse owners, veterinarians, and farriers. So there's going to be people listening who experience excellent collaboration and communication between their equine practitioners and others who have literally never considered the need for one to connect with the other. So Nikki mentioned that you're both respected professionals here in Atlantic Canada. Could you guys each tell us just a little bit more about yourselves and your involvement with horses in a professional and or personal capacity? Yeah, so um, I'll go first. I grew up riding, so spent a lot of time in the competitive horse industry, um, which led me to then pursue a career in veterinary medicine. And I always kind of knew that I wanted to focus mostly on horses. So after vet school, I went down to... um, New England and did an internship there. And then after that, went out to Calgary and worked at a performance horse practice in the south of Calgary, working on a lot of sport horses, which gave me a lot of great experience. And then uh, two years ago, I moved back to the Maritimes and have been working in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia with a focus mostly on lameness and performance horses, but uh, do some general work as well and some acupuncture and chiropractic work too. Wonderful. All right. And Jordan, we actually met, I believe it was during your interview <laughs> with, yes, uh, with correct. Sunny Coast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess it went okay. <laughs> it went all right. Yeah. So, uh, so Jordan is now uh, our, our vet in our barn and she's done some brilliant work with us. So I appreciate you coming on board uh, two years ago. All right, Aaron, let's learn a little bit about you. Certainly. Thank you for having me. I'm a certified journeyman farrier and I operate a farrier practice in southern New Brunswick. I do some consulting work around eastern Canada as well. Uh, grew up always wanting to be a horse person and was lucky enough for my dreams to come true, I guess. And nowadays I spend most of my time under horses and not on them anymore. 
but uh, still just have a strong passion for them and I'm lucky to be the father of two horse crazy young girls that I'm trying to foster and and raise and keep them encouraged and heading down that path as well so just trying to help awesome oh, that's awesome yeah <laughs> two horse crazy girls that'll keep you busy just by itself yes ma'am <laughs> Yep. All right. So Jordan, I know that based on my experience with working with you, that you do maintain a cordial working relationship, an actual very functional working relationship with the farriers that, that uh, work on your clients' horses. But what does it mean to you to have a good relationship and open communication with an owner and their farrier? And then Aaron, we'd love to hear your opinion on it as well. Yeah. So I think we were kind of discussing this, Aaron and I, and um, one of the biggest things is probably being sure that the vet and farrier are actually communicating with each other. So a lot of the times the owner will try to relay messages um, and sometimes there's miscommunications. And so it's definitely easier just to have direct communication between the two. I'm very fortunate that I travel uh, fair distance around Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. So I get to work with a lot of great different farriers and see how each of them like to work. They all kind of have different techniques or different go-tos. So knowing what certain farriers are comfortable with, which others might not be comfortable with, I think is important for me. Um, and then whenever I'm working with a farrier or working on a horse, I always try to keep them updated if there's anything to do with lameness or even just small changes that we might want to make that would improve the horse's performance. So I have kind of a list of, of farriers that I try to touch base with um, each week and just go through any horses that I may have looked at the previous week just to update them on anything I noticed that I think might make their job easier. But yeah, I think just direct communication. And in the past, it's there's definitely been a lot of, I don't know what the word is, been a lot of ill feelings there's been a lot of struggle to communicate and we talked yeah. about we in in preparing for the today we we did talk about that quite a bit and um one of the biggest things that we both agree on i think is safety uh professional safety and personal safety that i think a lot of people a lot of people are anxious about sharing where they're at and sometimes that's just personal insecurities or not being sure fear of being judged on it. Vets and farriers come from two fairly distinct perspectives. And, and we'll probably talk about this later as we progress through all this, but um, different levels of observation. The horse owner or trainer sees the horse day in and day out every day. We as farriers see the horses regularly, normally around somewhere around the six week schedule, a four to, four to eight week schedule regularly, not in an emergency situation. Most veterinarians see the horses, if everything's going well, maybe they only see them a couple times a year. If things aren't going well, they see them more often, but it offers different levels of observation of what the horse is doing, how they're acting, how they're performing. And in that, my customers are expecting and hoping deep inside that when I'm done the visit and they say, so how did everything look? They're really hoping that I say, hey, look, you know, everything looks good. It looks healthy. Everything's growing well. And I don't see anything that's worrisome on my end. And if your horse is having lameness issues, when the doctor shows up and they say, well, what do you think? Well, they, they're not really expecting the same answer. So it's just kind of a, a, two very distinct perspectives, you know, and I think it, it makes the, the conversation difficult to have by times that 
I don't want to tell my customers that their feet, horses' feet are doing terrible for whatever reason. And it, it just kind of makes it difficult. But having two willing partners that feel safe and feel that they can communicate clearly and effectively to, to help, then, then everything goes well and, and everyone can move forward. Mm -hmm. And it really is about just creating a team for your horse that has the best care possible. So I had two experiences recently that showed me as an owner, the importance of having that open communication. And Jordan, the conversations that you have with my farrier, they're happening without me even knowing it. And then I saw the benefit to that. So uh, recently you actually looked at my husband's horse because he said, okay, well this, something's going on here. And when my farrier arrived at the barn about a week later, I said to him, oh, Jordan had seen, he said, don't worry about it. I already spoke to her and, and we're all good. So I felt very taken care of as a, as an owner and my, and that my horse was very taken care of through that conversation. And then last week during more of an emergency situation, I was trying to call one of you and then the other called me back and said, oh, I was on the phone with the farrier. So it felt like we were surrounded by a team that everyone had the horse's best care in mind. And, uh, and that was the first time that in 30 years that I had really experienced that. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing is that the horse is number one and we all try to do our best, but we are all different. And so you need to pick a team that's going to work for your horse. Um, because if your vet and farrier can't really work together, then you're just, you're only going to reach a certain level of success. So especially with like the performance horses or anyone kind of competing in sport, that would be especially important. It's still important with the pleasure backyard horses as well, but I think we see more of, more of it as a limiting factor in horses that are, are performing. Yeah, for sure. And so you guys, with this all being said, what can we as horse owners do to help facilitate that communication with our farriers and vets? So if, for example, if I don't even know if my farrier knows my vet, and I'm sure they do because it's a small community, but how do we know who we should be talking to first? And so if our farrier is there, like you're saying, Aaron, more often, should we have to be then saying to the farrier, if there's a little bit of an issue, are you going to con contact my vet or how, how do we approach that? Uh, yeah, I think that that it, it, there's a ton of different scenarios for that, but um, I think it goes right back to the very beginning in selecting a vet and a farrier. We all have to start somewhere and there are some people that just don't play well with others, unfortunately. And so uh, when you're shopping for a vet, shopping for a farrier, it, it's definitely a very important thing to keep in mind is how well they work with others, what their history is of working with others. And then in going forward from that, for me, it's a very easy, open dialogue that I take care of the hoof capsules and I try to keep horses feet as healthy and as sound as I can. When a, there's a lameness issue, if beyond a, a possible abscess that I could help treat or dealing with laminitis, something that's directly in, in my wheelhouse then lameness is the vet's job. And I'll, I'll look and see if there's something obvious that pokes me in the eye, in which case I can help either advise you on a, a basic protocol to treat it or advise you to get in contact with your veterinarian. And when it gets kind of higher stake stuff, then that's where 
having a vet and a farrier that just automatically communicate together is the key. And there, there's different levels of, of who needs to be involved when. If you have a laminate, if you have an acutely laminated horse, if you go to the barn this evening and you find your horse standing in a laminatic stage and doesn't want to move and has high digital pulse, then you need to get both of us on the phone immediately. And you need to start calling and keep calling until we're both on the phone and we're both on the way in order to have the best prognosis for your horse. If you have a, a horse that has some white line issues, that's more in my jurisdiction. That's something that I need to deal with or possibly a crack or you know, a, just a purely hoof related incident. If any of that penetrates into sensitive tissue, then all of a sudden the vet becomes part of the team that needs to be dealing with that. So it's a, it's a very deep, there's tons of layers to that. Um, as far as facilitating it, I think it should almost happen on its own. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes, and, and that might be oversimplifying it, but I think nowadays, one of the, the most beneficial technological advances I have, I get pictures every day from people all around North America, all over the place. I get pictures of good feet, bad feet, blown up hawks, whatever, just because it's easy to share so much information nowadays that when I look at a horse and I know, say, Dr. Koivu is the veterinarian that's been working along with it. I show up and I see anything abnormal, I share it. And it takes none of my time. It takes seconds. And when she's free, she sees it. She can respond. She can make observations. She can contact the owner. It's just super easy nowadays. I think the bottom line here, what you're saying is that, first of all, we should ask the questions. We should be clear when the farrier is there to say, and they, if you mention there's a little bit of an issue or I'm a little bit concerned about this and we say, do we need to contact the vet or will you contact the vet? And if we know as horse owners that it's something that is more serious then we need to know to contact the vet and the farrier. Yeah, we talked, we talked about that. And I, I can, I'm going to take this one from my perspective on a little bit that as a farrier, you go, you go through different cycles through your, per, through your career. And in starting out, I'm very, very thankful that when I started out, I had some really gracious clients that allowed me to work on their horses and build my skill set when I was trying really hard, but maybe wasn't all that qualified. And there was stuff that went a little bit sideways and didn't go that well and experiments that got tried that didn't work. And thankfully for the horses I was working on, the most important thing was that I showed up on time. I called them back in a timely manner and I was polite and friendly. That was enough for me to keep the work and to be able to keep working and developing my skills and then it developed beyond that and into doing a higher quality of work and being more confident in my skills and being able to help the horses more but when you're going through that learning process it is very anxious I still get butterflies showing up at burn and you you are very anxious and when you're under a horse and you're the only one looking at it and it's kind of a dark barn and maybe the owner's there maybe they're not and you see something that's kind of going wrong it takes a lot of self-confidence to point it out and say okay so poor fluffy is doing okay but i'm concerned about this because i don't want to make horse owners concerned i want them to feel confident in my skills and my ability to take care of their horse so i think that by times we kind of sweep things under the rug a little bit in hopes that we can figure it out come up with a solution on our own and sometimes we need to just be honest and be open and feel safe in doing that to say, okay, so this is not going very well. 
and we know we need to reassess this and we might need to bring in some outside help to to consult or look or give ideas and sometimes it could be another farrier sometimes it's a veterinarian that that steps in and can help Jordan mentioned earlier about how much she travels around and works with a bunch of other farriers. I shoe horses five days a week. And if I see two farriers a week, that's a busy week that I see two other farriers other than myself. Mm -hmm. Isolation is a really, really bad disease for us. And she gets to see a lot of farriers just because of the nature of her job. She sees many different farriers and she sees different styles, different things that people are doing. So she's a great resource for me that if I feel like something's going sideways, well, hey, have you seen anybody else dealing with this? And what are other people doing to try to help and try to benefit this situation? And they can be a, a very valuable resource that way. That's a really good point. It is. And yeah. I just wanted to touch on the conversation around the anxiety as a professional working with and on someone else's horse and really wanting to be able to have those positive conversations and then seeing something that kind of makes you a little unsure. And Jordan and I have had this conversation in the, in the past as well, in that in, I think there's actually, we're going to be getting into this a little deeper in a moment, but really looking into when you have horses come in for training and it's a similar sort of feeling where you start seeing something and you start saying like, I think someone needs to look at this. A professional needs to look at this, whether it be the farrier or the vet. And it's, it is a, an anxiety producing situation because that, you know, we're putting those horses first, but sometimes people, you kind of feel like they'd rather just hear that that everything's going well. Um, but it's really important for us to be able to be open and have those open conversations. Yeah. I think in, in the horse industry, whether you're a trainer or a vet or a farrier, there's always a lot of pressure to perform and people want sound, healthy horses. And so we all put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make sure that everything is successful. And these clients are paying a lot of money for all of our services but the truth is that it doesn't always go perfectly and usually it doesn't, but the more people that you have on your team with trainers, farriers, and vets that are all getting along, working towards the same goal, it definitely helps expedite that process. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to caring for our horse's feet, what should people really know about trimming and shoeing and ask of their, far their farrier or vet? <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing for me, and I'll let Aaron expand on this a little bit more because it was, it was his point, but it, it's the observation factor and just like seeing your horse every day. And even something that I never really thought about, which we discussed was that most farriers are looking at the horse every four to eight weeks, let's say six weeks average. Um, so they're seeing that horse way more often than I'm seeing it most of the time. And so just, just being around it and noticing any little changes before they become big problems, I think is a big thing. And then the other point for that would be trying to do regular soundness exams, or let's say regular yearly foot x-rays, just preventative practices to see little changes or find little changes on those exams before the horse is actually lame or having big problems. Because when you look at the same, when you look at horses every day, you pick up on small issues, whether it's a little more fluid in a certain joint, a little more back tenderness than normal, uh, crack starting in the medial quarter of the front 
right foot. So just in general, um, I think looking at the horses and then having your vet and farrier look at them regularly before there's always a problem. For sure. I agree. I think observation is first and foremost. Mm -hmm. As far as trying to teach horse owners how to trim feet or what a properly trimmed foot looks like, it, that's a very, not really a slippery slope, but a very tough task. It takes years to develop an eye to be able to read horses' feet and all horses have different conformation and there's a million different right ways to do it. For me, with my, for my customers, the biggest thing I tell people is just clean your feet every day. Every day, pick your horse, all four of your horse's feet up and clean them out. And a lot of people think that I'm doing that as some kind of a punishment or a penance or something, I, I, but it really is for observation purposes. If every day you go to the barn and you pick up your horse, all four of your horse's feet and you clean them thoroughly and you pay a little bit of attention while you're doing it, you're going to notice when something changes. When you pick it up and a clip is sticking out that wasn't sticking out yesterday, it's because the shoe was moved and bent the clip. Or if a nail pokes you in the hand while you're trying to clean your horse's foot that didn't poke you in the hand yesterday, that means something has changed. Something is different. If you notice a crack, if you notice a, a hole or a bit of decay in the frog or a broken bar or a place where your hoof pick didn't used to stick and now every time you try to clean there, it kind of catches and sticks in there. It's all just simple observations that, like Jordan said, can go a long way to prevent a problem. Mm -hmm. Horses are living creatures and we're not carpenters and, and mechanics. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as just unbolting the broken part and putting on a new fixed uh, one that's not broken yet. For us, we have to go back and we have to reestablish soundness and we have to reestablish healthy tissue and then it has to grow and it has to heal. So it's a much longer process. You can't just cut it off and we can't just put it, replace it with one that's better. Mm -hmm. So the observation to me is key. So I feel like the levels of observation, I feel like that really allows us to have a proactive approach with our horses versus a reactive approach. Right. And I feel like when that open communication that we've been talking about, when that's been really established, then you can have that for your horse instead of looking at it and saying, oh, my gosh, my horse is, is you know, now three legged lame. And you have all of those levels of observation, someone along the line, um, when we know observation is the key to all of this, uh, might be able to catch it sooner than later. And uh, and then it doesn't result in all of this other. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I have, I have a customer very dutiful, pays great attention to her horse. I show up, I go to trim her horse and I notice that his hind legs are a little bit swollen. He's got a little bit of mud fever, a little bit of inflammation back there. No big deal. She's doing what she can to treat it. She's being very thorough, doing what she can. I show up six weeks later, it's still there. It's still nagging. It's still a problem. Okay. Well, maybe then I start questioning. So, so what is it that you're doing? And, and I'm not a vet. I don't really have the right solution, but make sure that something is being done to try and prevent it, to try to deal with the inflammation that's there. So inflammation systemic and it kind of builds up. If I show up a third time and it's still there and it's still nagging. Okay. Now it's time that I speak up and say, we need to intervene here and you need to talk to a vet and you need to get some help and we need to deal with this before it becomes an issue. Thankfully, nothing has gone wrong yet, but it's there and it's nagging and it needs dealt with. Mm -hmm. I do have a question just to kind of follow up. And I know you, there, like you said, there's a lot of different styles and different ways of doing things. 
but coming from my own experience, when I have a new farrier, when I bring someone in, I almost just rely on word of mouth and their reputation that they know what they're doing. Because I will admit that I don't know a lot about my horse's hooves. And, and so when they come in and they look at their hooves and they decide what angle they're going to be at or how long they're going to be or things like that, I just leave it up to them because they're the professional. But I would really like to know, even if you tell us, you know, there's a specific website or resource or book or any tips that you can give to say when we should really know how to ask for something or, or to ask the questions about why the farrier is doing something a particular way. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. First, be open and ask, Mm -hmm. ask the questions and, and pay attention to the answers that if you ask me, well, how come you're doing that that way? And my response is, well, it's just the way I've always done it. Maybe not the best answer. (laughs) Um, On, on actually on one of the, your past podcasts, I, did do a little research and been listening to some. Um, I thought Danick made an excellent point when she taught, she talked about teachers and, and she said, if your teacher doesn't have teachers, you need a new teacher. And I thought that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just succinct and easy and, and on point. And it's the same with all professionals that I, I think I really value continuing education. And I think everybody needs to value continuing education. And even if someone's been shoeing horses for 30 years, if they're still shoeing horses today, the way they did 30 years ago, they're way behind. There's no question because the world is moving forward. What we're demanding of our horses is moving forward and what we're expecting. And and you look at the disciplines, you look at jumpers, you look at what a top level jumper did 30 years ago, man, amateur kids are doing that nowadays and expecting to do that week in and week out. So horses are being held to a higher level. And I think that as far as trying to choose one, I think being aware of the communication, if it's someone that you can't talk to, that you don't feel is putting any effort or any importance on communication, for me, that, that would be a huge red flag that I, w- I want someone that's gonna talk and that's gonna be open and gonna share what they know, good or bad. I tell people every day, I have no idea. I'm sorry. I wish I had a good answer for you, but I, I'm afraid I don't. I can help look and help you find the answer. But right now, today, I no, I do not know. So I think that, I think communication is key in life. You know, uh, if you can't talk and you can't, and you're not moving forward, you're not striving to, to connect and develop your skills and improve your skills, then, then maybe you need to look elsewhere. I really think that's an important point that you make about the continued education, but even just understanding the education that our other professionals that are working or that the professionals that are working on our horses have. I don't think that's a conversation that a lot of people are having. I know in the past, I didn't know, you know, what education my farrier had. And now it plays a very vital role in who we have working on our horse's feet because I want someone exactly like you said, Aaron, if your teacher or if the teacher doesn't have a teacher, get a new teacher. So I value continued education enough that I also would like to have the person that's working on my horses to value, have that same value as well. And I do think that that is something that we're lucky in the Maritimes to see it's, it's growing. 
um, that importance of continuing that education. I'll go back to uh, just to expand on it a little bit. I, th I think the, the world of education is changing so much. The podcast here today is a, is a perfect example that, man, you can sit home in your living room or you can listen to it driving down the road. You can, it's available. There's no excuse anymore. It used to be 20 years ago. It was expensive. It was a huge commitment. You had to get on a plane. You had to fly to another part of North America. You had to book time off. You had to have someone to cover emergencies. You needed babysitters. You needed all these things to go and try and get educated. You don't need to anymore. You can fire up your laptop and you can watch good quality content day in and day out every day. Yeah. It's there and it's available. So let's say you have a client who they are in that part of life where they're like, there's so much information at my fingertips and they're reaching out to other professionals around the world. And maybe there's something specific about their horse that they're trying to learn more about. So a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with somebody about like just the importance of the relationships that we establish with our farriers and our vets. And they posed a really interesting question. They said, it, let's say an owner takes time to educate themselves through research or conversations or courses, because we know that they're now so available for us. Now this is with other professionals. And then they discover something that they would like to try with their horse's hoof care, for example, a different type of shoe or something. How might they go about having that conversation with their farrier in a collaborative and respectful way, really with the intention being that they do respect their farrier's knowledge, but they would want them open to the conversation for possible new solutions? For me, I hope all of my customers are just comfortable enough talking to me to just say it, just bring it up. It shouldn't be an issue. It should be something that we're all okay. That should be okay. For me, I... I would hope that any of my customers could just bring it up and say, hey, a couple of years ago, there was Velcro on shoes and it was all over the internet everywhere. They were green or blue and orange and they were going to revolutionize hoof care because you didn't have to drive nails anymore. And they were everywhere. And that's all I heard about. I heard about it at Tim Hortons from a random dude with a purple mohawk because he saw me wearing a horseshoe sweater. And that's fine. Bring it up. Just ask. And my response it, it's, it's up to us. It's my responsibility to be able to go through it, research it if it's something that deserves being researched because there's a lot of stuff out there that's mm -hmm. silly and it's marketing and it's whatever. But if it, if it warrants research, then go look it up, learn about it and have a meaningful discussion about it. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that a horse owner is concerned about. They shouldn't worry about offending someone by saying, hey, did you see that Kirkhart has a new style of roller motion shoe. Do you think that'd be good for my horse? Well, no, your horse is a carriage horse and he works on hard surfaces, so it's not going to make any difference. Or there's a hundred different scenarios, yeah. but it shouldn't be a traumatic event. It should be a, that should be something that you just talk about. Mm -hmm. We don't know each other, Aaron, but what I'm hearing here is like the, the farrier has a little bit of anxiety to come up and speak to the owner about something that could potentially be an issue. And the owner has a little bit of anxiety about bringing things up to the farrier. And so having this conversation, if there happen to be any other farriers listening, and certainly there are other horse owners, it's like, okay, all we do, all we have to do is just communicate is just, we just literally have to say what's on our mind and not feel so anxious about it, it from both sides. And I think the other part of that too, Nadine, is really understanding the importance of 
having the farrier or vet that is open to having those conversations. And if you open yourself up and have the conversation and it's not received with an open mind, maybe that's just a little bit of a red flag. And if it is received and it opens up a nice dialogue, then you know that you're, you know, you have a really, a, a, somebody who's a good person for the team, for the horse. I agree. Okay. So Jordan, I was just thinking that, you know, when you started, do you feel like you almost have this on the other side a little bit because you guys do, you know, do acupuncture and there's some Chinese medicine thrown in there sometimes. Do you feel sometimes like you are having to have conversations about alternative vet care that maybe people don't feel as you don't feel people are as open to, or do you feel like that's pretty standard and people are like, I feel like for the most part, it's fairly well received. Like for me, I definitely, I like to add in those integrative therapies like acupuncture, uh, chiropractic, uh, Chinese medicine as a, as a complement to my routine work and therapies. So there's probably only been a handful of people that are not necessarily open to it. And for me, that's not really an issue. There's always different routes we can go. And the big thing is finding what works for that specific owner. And so I would never, I would never push something if they weren't comfortable. If I really felt like it would make a big difference, then I, I would a little bit depending on the client and um, how well I know them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, it, I don't think it's really been a big, big issue in that sense. We would like to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Pache Motors. They are the largest Ram HD dealer in all of Atlanta, Canada. They're family owned and operated and their highly trained staff know trucks, towing and hauling better than anyone. I am so excited. I keep on saying this after every one that uh, we're actually getting our new truck soon, but it hasn't arrived. And I keep saying to Mike, are you going to call them? Like you should call them. And he's like, no, it's no big deal. I'm like, it is a big deal. I want the new truck now. It's a big deal. I want to see it. Anyway, he's, he's, I don't think he's as excited as I am, but it's so funny how that worked for you guys, because it was for us, it was like one day, oh, we should trade in the cards time to the lease is done. And Mark's like at the dealership the next day going like, I bought you a truck. (laughs) (laughs) He does not have the patience to wait for one to be delivered. It's got to be the one that's on the lot already. Anyway, we yeah, got lucky with that. Yeah. He's Mike's like, yeah, it'll be here when it's here. It's no big deal. I'm like, come on. Anyway. All right. Now that we know that we should be communicating and our vets and our farriers should be communicating together. And we have some tips on how to care for our horse's feet. What are some things that an owner should keep an eye out for? So perhaps just some red flags. I know we've touched on a few, but what are some red flags that people might need to make the farrier or vet aware of something when it comes to hoof care in particular? You know, maybe they see things like tripping or overreaching or shortened stride. Um, okay, I'll answer first because my answer will probably be a little bit different than Aaron's, but definitely uh, tripping or short stridedness, whether it's in front or behind, those would all kind of come down to soundness exam issues for me. So I think. Anytime your horse is not moving normally, which that can range from being lame to just being short and stiff. I think that it's worth having someone with a a more knowledgeable set of eyes come out and have a look at the horse. And that's probably quite different than some of the red flags maybe that you would, Aaron, want clients to be looking out for in the horse's foot or in the way they're moving. That would make you feel like you need to be aware of something. 
Yeah, I think all I think all of the observations are, are worthwhile and and definitely worth sharing. I think that I I see it fairly often that we kind of as horse owners get unrealistic expectations of our horses sometimes. That I hear like, oh, he he coughed like three times in the last two weeks. Do you think we should have the vet out to look at it? I said, well, maybe. But it's also November and the temperature has been swinging 20 degrees every day. And I've been coughing in the morning when I wake up and I'm not really concerned. I'm not going to the outpatients to get looked at. So if it continues and it develops, then yeah, sure. Or I was trail riding the other day and we were on kind of a rocky slope and he tripped like three times. And it's like, well, yeah, I probably would have fallen completely down if it had been me walking down the same trail. So um, I think that having reasonable expectations is important. Uh, as far as things that are real red flags, I, I, it really boils back down to just the observation. Anything that's out of the ordinary, if you have any questions or any concerns, you put it out there, ask. I think if you notice something change, any change for the better or the worse, then you should put it out there. I think that's important too, is that it positive is always really nice. Like, yeah, yeah. hey, you know, yeah. my horse has been super happy lately and you should see him run when I turn him out in the morning it's really cool to hear that stuff so um the positive is sometimes just as important as the negative stuff uh I think anything, that's that's, anything outside ordinary should be brought up yeah so Nadine and I have spoken about the importance of knowing your horse is normal in the past and I think that probably is what it comes down to is that observation allows you to really know what is your horse's normal. And Jordan, we actually spoke to someone who is an endurance rider and she takes her horse's heart rate before and after every single ride. Wow. So yeah, like that is commitment. She has an Excel Excel spreadsheet, (laughs) right? So that that's like the extreme of knowing your horse is normal, but it, is very telling. And she was able to actually catch, uh, her horse in an early colic based on the information that she mm-hmm. knew, but it's important to know, like, what is normal for my horse's feet? What is normal for my horse's breathing? What is normal for my horse's energy level? And then taking into account all of the other factors, like the time of year, uh, whether they're in heat, whether, you know, they have been, in a turnout because of mud versus out in the pasture, if you've changed feed, whatever it might be. So really looking at the larger picture and not going into panic mode when things change, but just having that nice open observational eye and then the open dialogue with the professionals that work with your animal. Yeah, I think just observation and recognizing patterns and when that pattern becomes abnormal. Uh, you can catch stuff before it becomes a problem. And, and I think that as I'm thinking of um, some other examples that are not just about knowing your horse is normal, but knowing what is normal. And so, for example, if your horse, um, if you're riding and you constantly hear your horses, their shoes clacking together. Yep. So that to me, it's not necessarily normal. It may be normal for your horse, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the farrier might be able to do something about that. Yes, that's that's an excellent point you bring up i think that it goes back to the awareness of what of who we're dealing with that i can think of different horses in my practice that i have one particular five-year-old dressage horse and he's absolutely gorgeous he's stunning he's tall he's got wonderful beautiful straight long legs and his back is like 
a third of the length of his legs. So he could physically just stand in the cross ties and reach his hind leg about two feet beyond his front feet. Wow. And he forges like there's no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I try to help him and I try to slow down his hind feet and get his front feet out of the way for him and create space for him. But realistically, he's just so athletic and his confirmation leads him to that being his normal. And it's not necessarily ideal. It makes him a lovely dressage horse. He's a beautiful mover and elastic and it's it's (laughs) incredible, but it creates problems. And other horses, if you have, uh, you know, a longer back, shorter legs, then it's being aware of what you're dealing with. There are, and and I'm going to take it back to kind of comparing it to cars. I shoot some Corollas and I shoot some Ferraris. And if we're going to have Ferrari expectations from a Corolla, everyone's going to be disappointed and nobody's going to be satisfied and vice versa. If you want to have Corolla maintenance, don't buy a Ferrari and don't expect for the Ferrari performance. You're not going to take your Ferrari to Mr. Lube to get the oil changed. That's not going to work. And it's the same with horses. If you have the fancy high performance horses, they're going to be a little bit higher maintenance. They're going to be a little bit tougher to deal with, but you're going to reap the rewards, hopefully. And there is normal and there's abnormal. If, if, you're, if you trail ride your horse every day and all of a sudden you realize you're walking down a nice, quiet, sunny trail and you think, how come I'm hearing him banging his feet together? He never did that before. By all means, that's, a, that's something to take note of and to mention and talk to your farrier about. And if your farrier doesn't have a solution or, or an explanation, then it's something to talk to your veterinarian about. And it, that's, uh, it's definitely a red flag. And it's definitely, ab- if it's abnormal, then it's a red flag. Jordan, what are the normals that you think people should know from just, so I mentioned heart rate, but do you think there's things that people should really have a benchmark continually for their horse for? Uh, for me, it would be definitely feeling their legs, like knowing how tight their legs are. Um, some horses have wind puffs, some horses don't. Most horses that have wind puffs, they'll go down after they're worked a little bit. So just making sure that that consistency is there. Legs and feet would be the biggest thing that I would keep an eye on. Also doing neck stretches. So if, if your horse is asymmetrical going one side, to the other that's something to be aware of and and why is it asymmetrical and what can we do to improve it if they're girthy or cranky getting tacked up like just being aware of their regular there's some horses that don't have ulcers and they're just cranky getting their saddle on every day and that's just them so if you've ruled out any underlying issues for pain then i think just knowing the horse's baseline like aaron said they're all they're all a little bit different so um knowing what's normal baseline for each horse is important do you recommend getting a set of x-rays done? Like, let's say I breed a horse and I plan on keeping it for quite some time. Do you recommend people have a set of x-rays done for a baseline internally as well? I think this comes back a little bit to expectations and what you want to do with the horse. If you have big goals and you want it to be a competitive horse or not even necessarily competitive, but let's say a horse you want to have for 15 years um then i think it's always good to have some x-rays as a baseline whether or not you need it would just depend on on what expectations you have for the horse 
a lot of times clients will ask me, is it a good idea to get x-rays? And I usually will say, well, it's never a bad idea if you want to spend the money on them because it always gives you a baseline and then you have something to compare to. So if there's ever little changes a year later or five years later, you can take a new one and then refer back. And if there's small changes, which usually on x-rays, they are small changes unless it's a catastrophic incident. So it is really helpful to have baseline images of whether it's distal limbs or back or neck. We can image so much that these days of the horse that um, we're really fortunate in that sense. But yeah, I think, I think depending on what the client's goals are, what the expectations are for the horse, the more information we have for anything always makes things easier and is more helpful. So great answer. Nadine, do you have any follow-ups there? Well, my, my follow-up is, I think you mentioned maybe earlier about doing like annual x-rays of their feet. Yeah. I, so for some horses, let's say a horse has some conformational issues with their feet or maybe they've had a laminitic episode in the past. If there's any issues like podiatry issues with the feet, I think it can be helpful to have updated x-rays each year. It, it depends on the farrier a little bit too. There's certain farriers that would be grateful and would like to see fresh set of x-rays every year for themselves to know that they're on the right track um, to make sure there's nothing new that they should be aware of that might change the way that they're shoeing or trimming the horse. So yeah, I think it, again, it depends on, on the expectations of the horse, but for, for horses that are expected to perform, I think that it would be beneficial for them to have those. I think it's really good that you guys are making the distinction in the expectations because Nikki and I are coming from a performance horse perspective. And so there are definitely going to be people listening that have horses that they just trail ride with and have them at home. And we would certainly not expect people to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars every single year if they don't ever expect their horse to be at a performance level and if there are no actual issues. So I really do think it's like you guys said, obviously know what your normal is and keep an eye on things and make sure you're calling the professionals when you need to, but know what your expectation is of your horse. If you have a $30,000 horse, you're definitely going to put the money in to make sure that they are maintained properly. Yeah, for sure. I think being aware that it's not static either is important that things change. I measured a horse's feet a, a couple of weeks ago because the owner was investigating buying a set of boots. They don't ride often. They, the horse doesn't need horseshoes for wear prevention. That's the most common reason I shoe horses is wear prevention. The outside of your horse's foot that you're looking at when you pick it up every day is all dead tissue and it's callous and it's insensitive tissue in order to allow them to walk across hard, rough, uneven ground. If they're wearing that away faster than they're growing new foot to replace it, then they get sore and they have issues, they get tender. So this horse that, that I measured a couple of weeks ago, he doesn't have any wear issues, he's fine. But the owner would like to take him and do some trail riding. And she feels that there was a, a bit of concern just with rocky ground and things and she wanted to protect him. She didn't want to spend the money to shoe him regularly. And it really, what it's not necessary for him to be shod for what she's expecting to do. So she wanted boots. So she asked me if I'd measure him. Yeah, no problem. So as I trimmed him, I made some notes of how big his feet were so that she can go and order her boots. And when I sent the information to her, she said, huh, that's curious. His feet were a different size a year and a half ago. Then I had, I explained to her that 
horses feet are constantly changing and and i just measured them a couple of weeks ago so we're in spring and, and we're just coming out of a fairly dry fairly cold winter that's been fairly stable i don't really remember what what time of year it was that i measured him last time but if it was early summer after a very wet muddy soft spring yeah his feet are going to be different we live in a climate that has four very distinct seasons i have horses i have some horses that are 100 percent the same day after day every time i see them there they change very little but i have other horses that change drastically over the course of a year they have almost four sets of feet because the, the environment is such a key factor in your horse's feet that in the winter time when things are cold and hard and frozen their feet are going to be longer and they're going to retain more soul and build up more callus to deal with that hard frozen ground then spring shows up i'm getting ready my i've got my phone warmed up and plugged in at home and it's ready for being inundated with calls of people that are concerned because my horse's frog just fell off. This <laughs> yes. is a catastrophe. No, the excess callus that he built up over the winter, he doesn't need anymore because now it's warm and it's raining and it's muddy and he's shedding that callus. If you talk to people that do weightlifting, calluses are really, really important, but you need to keep them viable. When I take a week off and go on vacation, by the end of the week, I'm picking at all the calluses that haven't been used and stimulated and, and sustained for the week. And then I have to go back to work and start rebuilding them when I go back. And horses feed are the same way, that they change and they ebb and they flow. And just because they're not the same today as they were six weeks ago or six months ago, doesn't mean that there's a problem. It means that there's a change. And it could be something as simple as the environment. It could be something as complex as it lameness issue that you need to bring in other professionals. Okay. Huh. So much good information. <laughs> it's so good. I'm so glad you guys are here. So how does the dynamic shift or work when it comes to sending a horse for training or bringing horses in for training? So does a horse shift to being a client of a training burn for the period of time that they're there and there is the expectation to communicate and share records with the regular vet or farrier. Um, like, so what should an, an owner expect from a trainer vet farrier in terms of care and communication when their horse is there? Um, I think a lot of that depends on the trainer. So there's certain trainers that specifically have a vet and farrier that they like to use. For sure, they would have a farrier that they would like to use, but often they'll have a vet specifically that they would call as well. And it seems like most clients trust the trainers enough that a lot of the time, for me at least, I tend to work for certain trainers. So if there's a horse in there that's having any issues, the trainer would probably ask the client, hey, would you mind if the vet that I normally use has a look at your horse? And uh, I'm not sure we talked about this question a little bit yesterday, because I think the answer can be a little bit different between the two professions for this. But then for me, obviously, if I found anything with the horse and the horse had a regular vet elsewhere, it would be important for me to communicate any findings or any concerns that I might have. Or maybe the client wants to use the regular vet and they don't want to use the trainer vet. So I think that's a really, that's a tough question to answer because it's always different. And it, it mostly 
would depend on the trainer and the client in that situation and what they're comfortable with. So really, it probably is just coming down to communication yet again. Um, there's so many great conversations that need to take place when you drop a horse off, but that is definitely one where you really have that open dialogue of what does happen in an emergency. What are your preference versus what are my preference preferences? Yeah, I think so. And um, I definitely have some burns that whenever a new horse comes in for training, a lot of the time I will just do a once over on it because the trainer wants to have a baseline before it starts intensive training with this horse to make sure that there's no red flags or nothing coming up that they need to be aware of before they put this horse in a more intense workload. I'm assuming that for a lot of professional trainers that there's some sort of a contract that this is just the way that this is done that it's communicated to the owner when the horse is brought in that we're going to do a once over we're going to just make sure that your horse is sound and healthy before we start getting into the training. And so I think Nikki, you do these vet exams a lot when you have horses in for training as well. And so I think if there are owners out there who are thinking of sending their horse for training to just expect that conversation to, to either initiate that conversation if it doesn't come up or to expect the trainer to say, okay, we're going to do some just basic investigations. And also our farrier will be looking at your horse while they're there. And if anything comes up that they need to address, then we will send you the bill. Yeah. And I think, I think that's like comes down to what's in the best interest of the horse. And so in order for the horse to succeed in the training program, in order for the trainer to succeed with the horse, it's important to have a a solid baseline before you begin. And so that's, for me, that's when I would play a role a little bit in just doing a once over, not because the horse has any problems necessarily, but just so we have a base to start with and, and make sure that we're going to have the best outcome for this horse. This is actually something that I feel like we could open ourselves to really bringing into the programs. Oftentimes you have the conversation and the owner, um, based on their experience or based on what they're seeing with the horse, they don't see any problems. Um, and they're, they, nobody brings their horse thinking to training, thinking that they are, you know, in a physical way, unable to actually handle the training. So whether that be lameness issues or stomach issues or back issues, what it might, whatever it might be. But I do think, you know, we have the conversations, but we don't have the initial check-in and what we are coming against is on a regular basis, these horses come in and about two weeks into the training, you start seeing these little things. And, and then we have the conversation with Jordan or, uh, or another professional. And we also end up having the conversation with the owner, but maybe we need to start taking a more proactive approach. And Jordan, you and I have had this conversation um, as well, but it's, uh, it's something that's coming up within our practice that is definitely be making it more, definitely going to be more of a priority because every single year it becomes, we become more aware of it, really. I think an important thing that I'll add to that is fitness. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you guys see that. All I know time. I see it. Jordan sees it. We all, we all see it as professionals mm-hmm. that a, hor- a horse has a list of things ahead of them that they need to overcome. Mm-hmm. And fitness takes time. There's no replacing it. You can't do any way. You, there's nothing we can do. Joint injections aren't going to fix a lack of fitness. Shoeing, none of it's going to fix that. And if you're sending your horse to a trainer for 30 days, if he's showing up and he's not fit and he's not healthy and he's not ready to go to work on day one, 
then you're wasting your money for the next 30 days because that horse is just going to get fit and just going to get sound and going to get those issues dealt with. And I, I shouldn't say wasting your money. You're not wasting your money, but you're, you're not spending it in a training with, as far as a trainer, you know, benefiting the training of your horse that that month is going to be spent getting your horse ready to start learning. And I think that that's a huge thing for me in my practice. I, I see that regularly. And, and I think it's something that people miss often. I can remember as a kid, Friday nights, coming home from school, cleaning tack, all excited, going to a horse show Saturday, and my parents getting home an hour or two later, seeing me working, saying, so what's your plan? I said, well, I'm getting ready to go to the horse show tomorrow. Oh, yeah? How many times have you ridden your horse in the last week? I don't think you're going to a horse show tomorrow because I don't think any of you are ready to go to a horse show tomorrow. And I see horses week in and week out that a haul-in coach comes to the facility, shows up, it's time for Susie to have her lesson. And if Susie hasn't ridden her horse in the last week, then she still wants to give Susie her money's worth. And that's her responsibility. She, she wants to coach and do her best and teach as much as she can for an hour. And that horse isn't physically ready to work for an hour. And the horse is going to be sore and uncomfortable for the next four days after the lesson. It's not because the horse is broken. It's not because the horse needs different farrier or a different vet or anything like that. Horse needs to be conditioned and needs to be ready to do the work that we're expecting of them. That is such an important point. Yeah, and we've been talking about this a lot, actually, Aaron, and just because of the time of year, I think. And I almost fall on the the other opposite end of that, where I'm like, I don't ever want to push my horse that hard. You know, I'm the first one that's going to pull out of something because I don't feel like my horse is in shape. I've been in the middle of a lesson and thought, okay, I need to tone it back here because my horse isn't ready to keep loping, you know? And so I am always an advocate for the horse. And I think that's what we all need to be is what you're saying is just understand where your horse is at. And if they're ready to do the things that you're trying to send them off to do. And sometimes you are just sending them to a trainer to get back in shape. And I think it goes back to expectations too. All right. So we've covered that part. And so the next thing I really wanted to bring up is that a lot of us and Jordan, you kind of touched on this a little bit already. A lot of us have our one vet for our routine care. We may see them once a year and hopefully, you know, maybe not any more than that for, for emergencies. But then some people don't even know that there are possibilities to have specialists come in. So lameness experts like yourself. And so I'm wondering what kind of specialized care is available to us for our horses, legs or joints or hooves. And, and how do we go about finding them? I think so. Uh, in the Maritimes, we definitely have there's quite a few specialists over at uh, the Atlantic Veterinary College. And then there's a lot of veterinarians in the area that would have a focus on different things. So whether it's lameness or uh, repro or dentals or uh, integrative therapies, there's lots of, lots of options. And so just finding one that meets your goals, if you are competing and are working in like a, with a high performance horse. And it's nice to have a veterinarian who looks at horses that are competition horses and sees those things every day. And as a horse owner myself who competed, if I was having someone look at my horse for a performance issue or a lameness issue, I want it to be someone that looks at those issues all the time. Um, If you called me and asked me if I would come breed your horse and do your repro work, I would probably say, no, thank you. 
that's not my focus. And I don't think I can do a good, as good of a job on that as another veterinarian could who spends more time on that and is more passionate about that type of thing. So we all have different strengths and weaknesses and we all have different personalities. And so I think finding a veterinarian that meets whatever goals you might have and that you get along with and that you trust is the biggest thing and can communicate with, then yeah, there are lots of options in the, in the Maritimes and there's a lot of great bets and it's really just finding one that aligns with your goals and your expectations. All right, Jordan, I relate to this from an actual human medical perspective. My husband is a general practitioner, so it's very normal for him to basically investigate. He comes up with a couple differential diagnosis. And then if he needs to, he'll consult with a specialist, the specialist sees the patient, and then they send back the report. And I know that in other parts of the world, for sure, um, where I got my horse before I talked to him, he was in Saskatchewan or before I, before I bought him, he was in Saskatchewan. I talked to the lameness vet and, and talk, you know, like he had gotten hawk injections once before. And so I wanted to speak to him about that. And, and he was just the specialist. He wasn't the doctor that came in to float the teeth once a year. He just dealt with their legs. And I don't know, Nikki and I have talked about this a little bit, but I don't know if us here in the East Coast necessarily go that route as much. And I guess I'm wondering, are we generally just okay to stick with our regular vets that do our regular maintenance? Or if we're competitive, is it frowned upon by our regular vets to call in someone that specializes in, in lameness? This was my question too. <laughs> oh. I just went in a roundabout way to ask it, but I just wanted to relate it to the yeah. human. <laughs> so I think it depends on the area. Um, obviously, if, if, if you're calling a veterinarian in the case of an emergency, then if, you're, if that veterinarian doesn't do any of your regular work, they're not really going to want to stand by you and, and come see you when you're in trouble. So I think it is important to use someone that's close by and local for your routine vaccinations, um, dental floats, deworming stuff. So that when you're in a situation where you might have um, an emergency, you can call on them to come see your horses and they know your, your regular routine. If you're competing, then that takes it to a different level. And so like everywhere else in the world, there's going to be veterinarians that mostly just do lameness. Um, and so that's the type of veterinarian that you would want to have a look at your horse for preventative soundness issues, but also if you're having any lameness issues, just because they're looking at more of those issues and would have a better eye for that type of thing and they're more comfortable with it. So it's a little bit hard in the Maritimes because historically with the, with the horse industry not being quite as big, there's been one vet that sort of does everything. And so now as as kind of a new generation, there's a lot of new young vets in definitely in Nova Scotia. And I work with a lot of them and we we're kind of revolutionizing the, the industry a little bit because we're, you know, we're not offended if, if we're working on the same horses doing different things, it's not a territorial thing. We, we should all want what's best for the horse. And at the end of the day, sometimes it's not the same person to do all those things on that horse. Yeah. I think wonderful evolution in our industry. I'm all, I'm a hundred percent behind it, that it, it makes sense. And your, your example is spot on. And, and I've been using that very similar analogy for a long, long time and talking with customers that 
going to a GP or going to a specialist is two different things. And it's not that one is better if, if it's just, they have two different specialties. They have two different areas that they're exactly. comfortable with. Mm-hmm. It's not a case of better or worse. It's just different. And I, th- I think it is fairly, I think it's fairly new. It is revolutionary. It is, it's, it's a, a different mindset that people didn't historically have here in New Brunswick. Dr. Koivu is from Nova Scotia primarily. In New Brunswick, we still have a provincial veterinary service. And we're in the, one of the few provinces left that do that. And so those veterinarians, they see everybody for everything. They spend their morning dealing with sick sheep and sick chickens and pigs. And in the afternoon, they come and they float your horse's teeth. And if you, while they're there, well, could you look at this one? He seems to be not moving right. Well, they're very, they're a general practitioner, and I'm very thankful for them. I have a great relationship with a lot of them, and they do great work. But if you're running into serious issues and serious problems, you might need to bring in a specialist. And I don't, I don't think in the veterinarians that I know, I don't think many of them would be offended by that. I think they would all appreciate the support, and I think that they would understand that they're not, a, that they're not a specialist. They're not in a position to be a specialist. They're, they're, they're very much a general practitioner. Yeah. I think that's very well put. It's the support. It's, it's not taking away from your practice. It's supporting yeah. you in with your patient. Yeah, very much. And, and the same, and same for farriers. I think it's the same for farriers. There's a lot of general practitioners out there. Uh, and I look, I look, if you look beyond the Maritimes, beyond the borders of our scope, that's a hundred percent normal everywhere you go. There are people that just shoe dressage horses or just shoe reining horses. And I know guys in Kentucky that just work on laminitic horses. They don't ever look at sound horses. All they work on is laminitic horses because there's market there big enough and strong enough to specialize and become really, really fluid and comfortable and brave in dealing with those cases. And here the industry historically wasn't as big and as vibrant and it's growing it's growing every day and it's exciting it's a fun time to be a professional here on the east coast in the horse industry because it is growing and it's getting stronger and we're seeing the evolution into specialties and into more focused areas i think it's such an important thing for us to understand and recognize that we're in a growth period and it is positive. And when you see these changes happening in our industry, that it's an, it's an indication that we're doing things well. I love when, when we started uh, working with Sunny Coast and, you know, Jordan came in, felt very supported. And then, you know, the, the change in dynamic with the communication between uh, my vet and then my farrier, I think that these are, um, these are all symptoms of a really healthy equestrian industry. And sometimes, you know, change creates a little resistance for people. And I think these conversations are what need to take place in order for people to understand that it's not as a result of failures of others, but it's as a result of the growth of the industry. Having a vet that focuses in the lameness realm is super, super important Um, for myself being in the performance world. And it's definitely made a shift for me and recognizing that now I also need to know the dynamic within um, the professionals that 
uh, I use for my horses and knowing that I do need to have those conversations with more local vets as well. And using those, this is something that Mike and I have been uh, discussing more recently is how do we really, uh, how do we really have an open conversation with all of the professionals in order to have the best care for our horses. So having someone that focuses on specific things, um, you know, and then also having that general care as well, more local, I think it's really important for people to, uh, to hear about. Yeah. I think it, it comes down to, there's more than enough work for all of us, farriers and vets. So I think we can all work together and just finding a team that works for each specific client and horse is the biggest thing. Yeah. Absolutely. That about does it for our questions. Before we get into our you tell me yours, I'll tell you mine. Are there any last points that you guys would like to make or advice that you'd like to share before we lighten things up a little bit? I think we've covered a lot. We've covered so much. I'm trying having a hard time to recap what all we've talked about. I think I, I could put out a vet apology to farriers for, uh, for trying to act like we know how to do their job. It's been enlightening for me to develop relationships with a lot of the different farriers and try to tell them less and just listen more and try to learn from what they see. Because like we talked about earlier, they're usually looking at the horse way more than I am. And so a lot of the times their insight is better than mine. And um, the other thing Aaron and I talked about was that a lot of vets come out of school with a textbook image of what they want the horse's foot to look like. So they take some x-rays, they look at the x-ray, the angle's not where they want it. They send the farrier a message or, or better yet, tell the owner to tell the farrier how to fix it. And little do they know the, you know, the farrier's already working on it or maybe they've tried things and that hasn't worked before. And so I think that again, just comes down to communication, but there's, there's been definitely issues in the relationships between vets and farriers in the past. And normally it's a, a bit of a blame game, but it, it just comes down to a com communication thing. I think that's a really good point. Go ahead, Nadine. Yeah, no, I just think we're really fortunate to have you guys both on here together. Speaking about this um, from both of your points of view, and uh, it would be, you know, maybe we'll have some farriers or veterinarians that are listening that will actually end up commenting or sending us some feedback as well, because I think it's a really great conversation for people to hear. Oh, I hope so. I, I think I, what Jordan just said, kind of circles me back around to the conversation uh, regarding horses going in for training. The first time I look at any horse, I try to do very little, I try to make no changes because I don't have that baseline. I don't know. Maybe that's the best this horse's feet have ever looked. So if I go making changes and it goes downhill, I have no idea where, where it was six weeks ago or eight weeks ago. Maybe it's the worst they've ever looked. But I think establishing a baseline goes a long way. And I think that we as farriers need to, need to have more trust in veterinarians in general. There, there has been animosity between the two professions in the past. And, and there probably always will be because we're human, but I think in general, we're all trying, we're all aiming for the same thing. We all want happy horses so that we have happy customers and we have a happy industry and we can all do what we love to do and provide for our families and lead the lives we want to lead. And that happens through everyone working together and being successful. So I think more positivity is good. Yeah. And actually when Nadine and I created Canada Horse Podcast and informed Equestrian, one of the driving forces 
was collaboration over competition. And I really, I feel like that is the driving force of this whole conversation is collaboration over competition. It's not allowing the ego to get in the way. It's really looking at what is the best for the horse right here and how can we work together in order to be more informed as owners, as professionals that are taking care of the horse. Um, I think that's really key. And then looking at the judgment piece as well. So looking and saying like, you know, as an owner, my, my farrier or my vet is not judging me. They're here to support me as well. Uh, and vice versa. So I think that I'm in love with our conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been really good. Okay. You guys let's do, you tell me yours. I'll tell you mine. So for anybody that's hearing this for the first time, it is a fun little segment that we do where we each share a personal story on the same topic. So today we thought this fitting for this topic um, to have you guys here. It's about a time when you've seen or made a minor change in a horse's care environment or equipment that has made a huge difference in their health attitude or performance. Nikki, do you want to share yours first? Sure. I'll keep it so short and sweet. And uh, it actually has to do with Jordan. And I, the first time that I met Jordan, I was actually going to try reining for the first time. And so I had her assess my horse because she wasn't quite stopping like I had wanted her to. And uh, she looked over things and it was the very first time that I had had a vet suggest injections. And so it was a great conversation for me because I'd come this far in my horse career and had not experienced um, injecting a horse before. And it was a really positive conversation. It was a really informative conversation and a really positive change for my horse as well. So I, um, I was really pleased with that new knowledge on my part, um, because I grew up with a little bit of a stigma there around injection. So it was, it was really, um, it was really helpful for me as a horse owner. Jordan, do you have anything to say there? You're like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm glad it helped. And, um, I think education is, is really important because the industry is constantly changing and we have so many options in how we can treat horses. I find a lot of the time if I'm talking to a new owner and I give them a diagnosis, a lot of the time their face will drop and I'm like, oh, this is no problem. We have so many options for what we can do here. Like, this is great. We have an answer and depending what you want to do, like we'll go from here and make a plan and hope for success. I agree. Day in and day out, the hardest part is the diagnosis. If we can figure out what's broken, then then we can put people together and we can come up with a solution. Mm -hmm. Figuring out what is broken is the hardest part. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jordan, you tell us, our, uh, you tell us yours. Uh, okay. So I think for me, it, it comes back a little bit to the fitness thing. And um, I had a, a horse, a warm blood that had a, I, I was a second opinion that looked at it. It had a right hind leanness and it had had a bunch of work done on the leg. Um, and then I went in and did some diagnostics and did some work as well. And in the end, we got some minor improvement, but not a big change, but the horse was not overly uncomfortable. So I told the owner, I said, well, just just ride it. And if it's not getting worse, it should get better. And, and basically the horse is doing great now, just from a regular fitness routine and being worked symmetrically and in different ways. So I think that comes down to a lot of the time, we just need to work the horses, train the muscles and get them in a program that's going to be consistent. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. That's 
is a good example of just trying different things until the right thing works, right? So Aaron, do you have an example? I do, and I find it super interesting how closely related the three of these have been or are <laughs> going to be. Uh, so I used to shoe this horse. I had been shooing her for probably five years and she was, and we, we tried to come up with the right term for this yet last night, but uh, very windswept behind that she pointed both of her toes to the right. If you were standing behind her, looking at her, both of her hind feet pointed the, in one direction. So she would wear the outside heel and the medial toe of her right foot and the medial heel and the lateral toe of her left foot. For five years, I battled that. And I searched and she didn't, she wasn't really lame. She was, she was sound, but she just kept doing that. And, and it was very, very noticeable. We had chiropractors look at that horse. I tried everything I could think of. We had massage therapists. We did, we ran the gamut, tried to fix that horse. And one day in April, all of a sudden it was better. And I thought, ha, I finally mastered it. I don't know exactly what I did, but I'm going to try and duplicate it this time. And everything was fine. The horse all of a sudden started wearing everything evenly. I was so proud of myself. Late August, I'm sitting at a presentation done by a saddle fitter who's a friend, uh, uh, the sister to a gentleman I was on the Canadian Farriers team with from Ontario. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, here are pictures of this horse. She had come to do a maritime tour fitting saddles. When she went to refit this horse's saddle, she went to reflock it and discovered the tree had been broken and fixed him properly. Oh, so every time they rode this horse, the tree was digging into her back and causing her to bend her spine and wear her hind feet unevenly. We had been for five years trying to fix something without looking in the right place. We kept trying to fix the horse and it was the saddle all along. So it's not really anything I can take credit for. I didn't do anything. I was deflated. Oh, I felt so terrible. So disappointed in myself, but uh, the horse got fixed and that's the main thing. And it circles around that same lady taught me, it's called the tensegrity principle. And that says that you can't affect any one point on a being without affecting the entire thing. And I think that's key that I see it day in and day out on horses I work with that all of a sudden I see a difference and I don't know if I, I search and try to figure out if it's an environmental change or a veterinary change or a rider change, a feed change, but it happens and there's always a reason. And if we can find it, we're all going to be better off. That is the best example for this topic. I could have, I couldn't have made that one up for, <laughs> that was amazing. What are the odds? Like um, how... That I was, was as astounded as you are. <laughs> and she was mortified because she always makes a point not to use horses from the area in her presentations. She always, in a, just in a professional vein, she tries to, she doesn't want someone to see their horse in their present, in her presentation. So she tries, she travels all around. She tries to use horses from other parts of the area. And it was just a simple mistake. And I'm so glad she made it. Oh man, that is so awesome. So Mine, my example is one that I think probably a lot of people will have a similar example, but it does come down to knowing your own horse. So I had this little quarter horse and I had ridden him quite a lot and he, we've been working, we've been working a lot. And all of a sudden I'd ask him to lope and he would start to buck, not buck, but just like a little, you know, kick a leg out or something. It was very uncharacteristic of him. And I went to go to a clinic and he was started doing this. And I said, no, I think his back is sore. Something is not right with him. So I got off and I didn't want to ride him anymore. And I was feeling around with his back, but I don't know what I'm feeling for. I just know that he's tense and he's kind of 
squinching away from my hand. So I called in, um, I got massage done and then I got the chiropractor in. And after a day, he was completely back to normal, moving free. I don't know. They said he had a, a couple of ribs in the wrong place or something like that. But it just goes down to know your horse. All of a sudden he's doing something. I, I said, it's not a behavioral thing. He doesn't do this. And there it was. It was pain. Pain, and... is, very, pain is a very difficult thing to overcome. Yeah. You can't train through pain. And I think that's one thing that uh, I'm seeing. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So once you start to see the signs of horses being in pain in different areas, I, I feel like sometimes I'm like, feel like I'm crazy because I'm like, oh no, something feels off here. Something feels off here. And I'm like, am I just paranoid? But when you really start to listen to the horse, uh, then you start to notice them at a, at a earlier stage, I think. And then it, it's better for the horse, but it actually, it's a little concerning <laughs> as, a, as an owner or trainer, because you're like, oh God, I feel like there's always something, but I feel like the horses, there's so much to them. You know, you're working with so much and you're expecting so much fr from them. And then you have saddle fit on top of it and all of these other things that there's, there's a lot that can go wrong. So, you know, instead of denying, I think it's really important for us to really be aware and be willing to invest, investigate and not just blame and say, oh, they're just an arsehole. <laughs> and I think Nikki, I laughed when Aaron mentioned earlier about like the person saying my horse coughed three times, because there is a little bit of that us being like crazy horse ladies. Cause I literally know when my horse coughs three times, like we have our ears perked, right? Mm -hmm. Something is happening. I'm keeping an eye on you now. And, but there's a difference between being fearful and just thinking that everything is a problem and actually being educated enough to know and, and see these symptoms that could become something else, which is what you're talking about, Nikki. Exactly. So I do have one more, you guys, we like to bring in a listener example, a listener experience. And I think you'll really like this one, Nikki. It came from Crystal. She started meditating daily and she found that she developed better timing and feel because of that. Um, she has found that she's softer and more connected with her horse ever since she started meditating. So she's sure it's no, co no coincidence at all that the small change in her daily habits really has actually helped her horsemanship. Absolutely. I love that one. And you know that I'd love that one. Mm -hmm. um, but part of that too, and I speak to this on a regular basis, it's really important for us to know our horses and know our horses normal, but it's so important for us to actually know our own normal and know how to actually regulate ourselves. So that's where that meditation comes in. And uh, our horses love it when we're coherent. And that's what she's feeling is that she became, she created a habit of coherence and horses like they live for it. They love it. Thanks for sharing, Crystal. All right. So guys, we want to just thank you for being with us today. It was incredible to have this conversation. I think it needed to be had. And I believe that uh, it will leave our listeners feeling informed uh, and, and able to really ask some important questions. So we appreciate it. Thank you for having us. It was yeah. fun. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, guys, now is the time for us to let you know who the winner is of our book giveaway with Trafalgar Books. Today, we've selected Nicole Matatal. We want to send a thank you to Nicole for really contributing on our social media and speaking with us and to us about all of the things. So we really appreciate your input and your insight, Nicole. Yeah, that is great. Nicole has secondhand stables. 
And we really appreciate her contributions on our Instagram page. And if you are interested in getting a book or an ebook from Trafalgar Square Books, check out horseandrider.com. They are the ones that have very generously donated a free ebook for one of our listeners each month. So Nicole, we will be in touch soon. Thanks for listening today. If you know a fellow Canadian equestrian or equine business you think needs to be highlighted on the show, be sure to email podcast at informedequestrian.com so we can be in touch. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to send us some love is by sharing about Canada Horse Podcast and Informed Equestrian with your friends. And leaving a review is always appreciated. Your support means the world to us. Until next time. Right on, Canada.